Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Shares of Tesla right now down nearly 5% after another tweet storm from Elon Musk targeting the Securities and Exchange Commission. Eric Gordon is a professor at the Raw School of Business at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, and he joins us now. Eric Gordon, why would Elon Musk do this? I think because he can't not do it. I, you know, the first few times Elon did this crazy tweeting stuff, I was scratching my head and saying, how could a CEO of a public company be doing this? Uh, but now if a day goes by, you know, I'm surprised that he doesn't. Uh, I mean, actually, Dana Hall uh, put out something uh, great on the uh, Bloomberg this morning. Here's, here's her opening line. Another day, another tweet storm from Elon Musk. Um, I think he cannot control himself. I think he doesn't want to control himself. He just, uh, you know, he's right. The SEC, everybody else is wrong, and and he's going to lash out at them. All right. So, so Professor Gordon, what is the board's role in reining him in? Because it's clear that he doesn't want to rein himself in, but the SEC is going to penalize him and the company if he does not. Yeah, and so it's that latter part. They're going to penalize the company if he if this guy doesn't shape up, and that's where the board comes in. The board is not supposed to look out for Elon, except to the extent that that helps the company. They're supposed to look out for the company as a whole, no matter what Elon says. So when Elon says, you know, support me, or I'm going to quit, or you know, whatever he pulls, I, I think the board, the board is the problem here. We know we know what the problem is with Elon. The question is, what's wrong with this board? Why isn't the board taking action to support the company and, and at some point to just protect the company? Professor Gordon, if someone that you were representing in the world of business publicly described the Securities and Exchange Commission as the Short Seller Enrichment Commission, what would you do? You know, um, uh, so I, I'm also a law professor and an attorney, and I would advise them to cut it out um, for, for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's just ridiculous. Um, that's that's not what they do. In fact, they gave him a very easy settlement. If I were going to criticize the SEC, it would be for offering such an easy settlement. But just as a practical matter, I, I mean, come on. When you're on the playground, do you taunt the guy, the big kid with the big stick? No, you don't do that. <laughs> well, Professor, I'd love to get your opinion. You know, you were saying, why isn't the board saying cut it out? Why aren't they reading it in more? It's their fault. That said, if they were to push uh, Elon Musk out or if something that they did caused him to depart the company, what would be left of Tesla? You know, it might be a better company. So we've said all along, uh, I haven't said, but a lot of people have said, certainly his fan club has said, the company is nothing without Elon. If that's true, everybody who's invested, everybody who's an employee is in real trouble because he could have a heart attack. He could be driving in a Tesla uh, and be using the driver assist and hit a truck and die. I mean, the company cannot be 
Elon. If, if that's the case, the board is at fault for not setting up a succession plan, for not insisting that there be a strong COO, for not insisting that a large public company have a team. Just, you know, just the admission that it's nothing without Elon, to me, is saying, well, come on, board, uh, why would you leave everybody at such big risk? But uh, to play devil's advocate there, uh, Eric Gordon, if you're an investor in Tesla, you already know all this, right? I mean, you don't have to own, I mean, you don't have to own shares of Tesla. You can buy a lot of other things if you don't believe either the corporate governance is accountable or indeed whether the CEO is going off the rails with his tweet storm. Yeah, and and I think that's a good point, and that's why their investors left. The stock has gone down, but it hasn't gone to zero. It's still a very highly valued stock, a highly valued company. And I think what's happened is we've seen investors who've changed their mind and said, let's get out. It's too scary to leave. But there are obviously a lot of investors who are left who are willing to hold stock even now at a very, very high valuation and who would say, look, we are willing to take that risk. And, you know, that's how the system works. You know, if some people don't want to take the risk, they don't. If other people want to take the risk, let them take the risk. Thank you so much for being with us. Eric Gordon, Michigan University professor uh, for the Ross School of Business, talking about Elon Musk and his inability to control himself with respect to his tweet storms. So let's take a look at what is going on right now in the midst of a bond market. Earlier this week, BlackRock's Muni Bond ETF, which has about $10 billion of assets, saw its biggest one-day withdrawal in its history. And meanwhile, you've got the shares of that down at the lowest levels of the year. Joe Mysack, come on in here. You're the person who always is following every uh, movement in the midst of a bond market, covering our Bloomberg brief focused on that market for us here. What's your perspective? Is this all just rates concerns? Ron. Uh, All right. Little, Joe Mysack, everyone. Kind of a uh, uh, little bit of uh, panic in the air, maybe. So this week we had uh, yields on the 10-year go up to a little over 270, which is a place we haven't seen. in On the 10-year municipal bond, you're saying? On 10-year municipal bonds. Tax-exempt. Tax-free. Uh, so 270 is a level we have not seen in quite some time. For most of this year, as our listeners know, the 10-year has been hovering in the 2.5% range, seemingly uh, range-bound, which is very unusual in the muni market. To plateau like that from February through September, very unusual. You go back years and years, rates are always ratcheting around in the muni market, reflecting supply and demand. This year was very unusual. I'm not sure you're going to see that sort of plateauing again. And, you know, right now, 270, not bad. Headed higher, one would think. All right, headed higher. If that's the case, do you wait until rates are higher or do you, when do you start to see money come in? Uh, I don't think the wise investor ever waits in the muni market because uh, you, you should, if you have a certain amount of money that you're going to put to work in the muni market, put it to work. 
don't wait. Uh, people who, who wait, um, I mean, there were people who waited, you know, let's say uh, seven or eight years ago, and they've missed, you know, seven or eight years of tax-free income, basically. So I don't think it's ever a good idea to wait. You might want to, uh, you know, maybe you shorten up a little bit, but um, no, no, waiting, not good. But, you know, what what kind of rates will we see to, you know, attract much more interest? Yeah, I think if you see the uh, 10-year go over three, uh, well, 30 basis points from now, I think you'll see some strong interest then. Joe, I want to talk about the technical factors, because we were speaking with a portfolio manager from Akai Shields yesterday uh, who focuses on the municipal bond market, and he was saying that heading into year end, you're going to see a lot of selling pressure, that liquidity could easily dry up as demand falls for municipal bonds. What's your impression of that, and how does that factor into how high yields could go? Oh, baby. The the technical factor uh, to really keep an eye on is supply overwhelming demand. So demand right now, we've seen a lot of uh, bid lists out for a couple of weeks now. And supply typically picks up in the municipal market the last quarter of the year. So you're going to see a lot of bonds coming to market, and they're going to have to pay up. It's just the uh, it's the nature of the beast. And then, you know, back in January and February, late December, you see a lot more money coming back in, money that's going to be looking for a new home, which is, you know, was our theme for so much of this year. Joe, I'm wondering if you could just speak a little bit about a story that you wrote entitled Mast man preps for showtime that was an interesting piece isn't that something Go ahead. just set the scene for people so they understand what what you're talking about back in april in illinois there was a lawsuit filed by a whistleblower unnamed uh, who described the pricing of variable rate demand obligation bonds said that the uh, remarketing agents which are basically wall street banks um, who set the rates on these bonds were not really doing their jobs. They were setting the rates too high so they wouldn't have to remarket the bonds. And this resulted in damages to the issuers of these bonds. So in Massachusetts, in August, um, the Supreme Court uh, in Massachusetts ruled that whistleblowers, if they file lawsuits, have to be named. You have to have individuals, not entities. So the entity, which is called Edelweiss Fund in Illinois, um, has to refile its case naming the whistleblower. And they recently got an extension, and that's where it is now. But very curious. So many people want to know, who is this masked man or woman? Do you have any idea? I do. Would you like to share? Uh, no. Not on that. No. Okay. Uh, no, All right. No. Just checking. Fascinating case, though. Yes. The VRDO market, variable rate demand obligations, that's a $150 billion market. And this is a sort of, I haven't seen one of these, you know, attacks on the industry uh, in certainly, you know, more than a decade. I mean, you did have a bid rigging um, and, you know, swaps investigation uh, after the financial crisis around that time. But you really have to go back to, to the yield-burning business of the uh, mid-1990s. A mere yesterday for you. Well, yeah. <laughs> Joe Mysack, thank you very much. Joe Mysack, Bloomberg editor for the Bloomberg Brief on Municipal Markets. 
Thank you very much for being with us. Cybersecurity and hacks. China using a tiny chip to hack into U.S. companies. Though many of those U.S. companies, such as Apple and Amazon, have denied the contents of a Bloomberg Businessweek cover story. Here to tell us about this topic is Malcolm Harkins. He is the chief security and trust officer at Cyclance. And he joins us now. Um, Malcolm, uh, maybe you could just tell us what does the chief security and trust officer at Cyclance do and then comment on this Bloomberg Business Week cover story, please. Yeah, not a problem. And it's actually silent. I beg your pardon. Uh, uh, yeah, no worries. So as chief security and trust officer at Silence, I'm responsible for our internal security controls and compliance efforts and really trying to make sure our infrastructure and uh, base of capability for how we operate our company is adequately secured and protected against uh, a variety of risks. Okay, so given the fact that you also served in a similar role at Intel, can you put us into, give us some insight into just how big of a risk it is if this is true that China is indeed possibly even implanting tiny microscopic chips in the hardware that they could use to have a backdoor entrance to a number of different servers? Well, for me, and given my prior role at Intel and being in the compute ecosystem for decades now, supply chain compromises has been a long-time concern, not only for myself, but many in the industry. And so there are nation states that have the capacity, the capability to actually do these type of things and implant chips or change software programs or do other forms of manipulation that would affect the foundation of computing, such as what was reported by Bloomberg the other day. Malcolm, there's a report that there are going to be new cybersecurity rules put in place in China. Beginning November 1st, police officers in China will have the authority to physically inspect businesses and remotely access corporate networks. Do you believe that that's consistent with the reporting about a chip that may have been implanted by the People's Liberation Army uh, companies in the servers that Lisa was referring to? Well, it could be the case that they created that chip in order to have that flow into Chinese organizations for that purpose. But the other aspect of it is uh, one of lawful entry. And if they've passed a law that said the Chinese can, under certain circumstances, uh, access uh, a company's network, access their devices, they don't necessarily need to have a chip to do that. They could do that by just showing up to the front door and uh, making that, in essence, lawful entry and then demanding access to those systems. It's like, uh, I guess I'm, I'm trying to understand, Malcolm, whether we're sort of overblowing the potential risk here of some of these international uh, cyber scrutinies or cyber hacking. I guess I'm trying to figure out, especially given the fact that these chips that we were just talking about have been put into the hardware at, you know, in, in servers that were in the Pentagon, for example, as well as the big tech giants in the United States. What's the worst case scenario here? And do you think that people are, are getting a little more concerned that they need to be? Well, I think the concern is real. And at that foundation of computing, it would be like having 
uh, rebar in the cement that, that isn't appropriate or having the wrong cement mix. And at that foundation level, if you have this type of compromise and that type of uh, vulnerability, everything above it in the compute stack and therefore the business processes, the communications, the sensitive secrets is now at risk. You know, Microsoft has what they call a transparency center in Beijing where officials can test products for security. Apple is building a data center in uh, the southwestern province of China to comply with rules that require cloud data from Chinese customers be stored in China. If one of those companies or a company that was thinking of doing business in this way in China came to you, what kind of recommendations or guidelines would you offer them? Well, first and foremost, in, in those situations and for a lot of uh, multinational companies, it's a, it's a business decision and a business choice. If you want to grow and you want to enter the Chinese market, you have to comply by local laws. And if those local laws then require certain testing or, or other things, then that's a business decision. Do you want the revenue and do you want to be in that market relative to the compliance requirements? And then you also have to think about then the implication of those local laws in terms of the risk to the rest of the business or the risk to your customers. And, and so it really becomes a, a calculus decision in terms of the revenue and the potential risk and then how you navigate those choices. Malcolm Harkins, thank you so much for joining us. A really important topic and important perspective. Malcolm Harkins is Chief Security and Trust Officer at Silence. Uh, he was the former, uh, he formerly was in a similar role at Intel talking about uh, what we've been seeing and what uh, Bloomberg reported yesterday uh, with respect to China implanting microchips in some of the hardware yeah. used by many companies. We've talked so much in the past few weeks about leveraged loans and how they are looking riskier than they have in the past, given the amount of money that's flowed in. Joining us now to talk about that is Beth McLean. She is portfolio manager at PIMCO, and she is absolutely one of the uh, most important people in the loan market, I would say. So, Beth, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. So let's just start with all of the news articles and headlines that have basically come out talking about how the uh, leverage loan issuance is going gangbusters and how deal terms are getting loosened up and how risk is building and how uh, it's setting up for a fall when the market turns. What's your perspective on that? Well, I think um, uh, first, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for having me today. Um, and, and there definitely has been a lot of press about some of the negative developments in the loan market. But I, but I do think we need to keep it in perspective a little bit. Um, you know, first, I'd say that terms across all of leverage finance have, have gotten a little bit looser, so it's not exclusive to loans. But then we have to keep in mind that loans still are senior secured top of the capital structure. So while we, we've seen some erosion in, in some of the protections as far as um, you know, tests on indebtedness and, and looser restricted payment baskets, et cetera. I think what that just signals to us is that it's very important for us to do our diligence to really, you know, focus on that bottom-up credit work, factor in what different scenarios might develop given these areas of flexibility in the documents, um, and, and then make the choices on which credits we are comfortable can survive, uh, you know, even in a weaker economic environment, 
with that type of flexibility. But but I think it's it's very important not to lose sight of the fact that you know loans still are senior secured, top of the cap structure. Um, and and then secondly, and I think this is a point that that people have overlooked is, you know, we're not seeing levels of leverage that we saw pre-crisis. In late '06, early '07, the big LBOs had you know over 20 billion of debt and leverage as high as 10 to 12 times. Um, so far this year, the biggest deal we've seen was a 14 billion dollar deal that came a couple of weeks ago, but where leverage was still only around seven times. So I think when we look at the risk in the market, you have to kind of look at that holistically. Where are we versus leverage? The terms might be might be looser, but the leverage is lower. And, and then again, it's critical for us as active managers to do the work and do the diligence and make sure we're picking the right credits. Beth, I'm wondering if you could just comment on something that I've noticed, and I don't know whether this is a trend or whether this has always been there, but I've just been paying closer attention. But the emphasis on advertisements for individuals who have mortgages to pay off those mortgages using home equity lines of credit. And that the reason I bring that up is because one, obviously the lines of credit typically are adjustable rate, whereas mortgages tend to be fixed rate. What do you see there? Well, so the mortgage market is not my area of expertise, but I'll tell you, I think that's just another symptom of, you know, potentially re-leveraging in the system, right? So if, if we are in fact seeing a trend of increasing home equity line usage, um, I, I, I don't think that's necessarily, I wouldn't think about the risk in terms of floating versus fixed rate debt in that space, but more is that just an overall re-leveraging um, that, you know, that, that we're seeing across, you know, corporate credit, mortgage, other spaces, and that's certainly something to watch. You know, one thing, Beth, that some people talk about with the loan market is that, as you said, it is senior secured debt in general, but second lien sales, which is basically uh, more subordinate uh, debt, have increased more, and there are a lot of companies that are turning to the loan market instead of the bond market. In other words, there is no other debt below it that they would default on before defaulting on their loans. I mean, how does that play into your into into your concern or, or view of the market right now? Sure, I think I think Lisa, actually, you highlight probably what we see as the biggest risk in the market, which is there has been um, a shift from loans with bonds beneath them in the capital structure to maybe loans with just a second lien or even loan-only capital structures. So because capital structure subordination is probably the most critical component of what, what your recovery will be when a loan, if a loan has to restructure, that is, that is certainly very important. So, so whether it's a, a second lien or a high-yield bond, if you lack that subordination, um, you know, th- that's where you could that's where you could get into trouble in in some of these instances. So how much lower do you think recoveries are going to be on loans in the next downturn just going forward versus the past? Sure. Well, in fact, Moody's put out a piece a little while ago where they um, you know, they highlighted the risk of loan recoveries slipping to, you know, in the low 60 cents on the dollar range versus, you know, high 70s, low 80s, which we've experienced before. I think it's hard to put one number on it, though, because, again, the market is somewhat bifurcated. You may see lower bond-like recoveries on some of these weaker loan-only capital structures, and at the same time, you can still see very strong, you know, 80 cent and above recoveries on companies, you know, the larger liquid companies with a more robust capital structure. So I can kind of see where they get to that average of 60 area, 
Um, but it's going to be very distinct amongst managers, and again, depending on how people are positioned in their portfolios, which is why you know it's it, it's again one of one of the key themes you'll hear from us at PIMCO why active management and bottom up credit research is so important because we need to make sure we're in the half of the market that has the 80 recoveries, not the 50 recoveries. Can you speak a little bit about the current liquidity that exists in the marketplace right now? Sure. Actually, you know, that's one of the bright spots, I'd say, frankly. Um, the the loan market has now surpassed a trillion dollars. It's closing in on, on being the same size as the high-yield bond market. And I think we see, you know, similar liquidity in, in, in the loan and the bond markets. Um, but again, it, it's, it's somewhat distinct in different portions of the market. For some of the, you know, there has been an increase in smaller issuers. And some of those smaller issuers, those deals tend to get sort of tucked away and don't trade very often. But particularly in the larger corporate space, the large liquid names that do have a diverse capital structure, um, you, we, we see pretty good, pretty good liquidity in those markets. How do you think that loans are going to fare as rates rise, especially if it does kind of constrain lending conditions? Well, sure. I think, um, you know, loans are, are one of the few bright spots for fixed income in a rising rate environment because we're floating rate and prepayable. We don't have the duration impact that you might see in, in investment grade and high yield markets. I think that's one of the reasons you do see good good flows coming into the market. Um, so I think as long as the rate path continues to be a gradual rise with a more moderate endpoint, I think loans should fare actually pretty well. And, and, and again, keep in mind, loans rates are rising because the economy is pretty strong, right? We've got a pretty steady U.S. economic backdrop. We've got strong um, earnings still coming from corporates with still a pretty positive outlook there. Um, and so in that... It, it, during this trajectory where rates rise on a gradual path, that means things are pretty good in the U.S. economy and things should be pretty good for credit broadly. Um, you know, and then it's, it's more, if we get to the end of the cycle, what happens, and that's where we think about, you know, again, some of that credit selection being in the right names when, when that turnaround happens. But for the foreseeable future with, with rising rates, that's actually a pretty, pretty good place to be in the loan market. Thank you very much for being with us. Beth McLean is Portfolio Manager for PIMCO, talking about the leverage loan market. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.